come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 92 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, we're going to have Odyssey Through the Ones number 19, as I have kind of a ghostly double feature here for you. With the first one is going to be Old Mother Riley's Ghosts. This is from 1941. This is one that I had a little bit of difficulty end up finding a copy, but I did end up sourcing it. And then I also have for you. It was made in 2020, started getting its festival around then, but now it's getting its full release here of A Ghost Waits. And then also featured on this episode, I have mini reviews of Horror of Dracula, Absentia, Taste the Blood of Dracula, and The Innkeepers. Don't really think there's anything else that I need to get you up to speed with here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And as always, I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review for this week is going to be Horror of Dracula. This is from 1958. This was directed by Terrence Fisher, and then it was written by Jimmy Sangster, and came from the novel from Bram Stoker. This stars Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Michael Gogue. This is a drama horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Jonathan Harker. He gets the ear of Count Dracula after he accepts a job at the vampire's castle under false pretenses, forcing his colleague Dr. Van Helsing to hunt the predatory villain when he targets Harker's loved ones. So this is a film that I sought out when I was filling out films from the past in the horror genre. I had started with the Universal Classics and then decided to move into Hammer films. I've seen this one a few times now and it is interesting it is the first one in the line of Dracula for this company here. So what I find interesting about this is that it takes things that the novel did, but also does its own take on it. Now we have most of the main characters, but just not necessarily in their roles from the novel. Like we have Arthur Holmwood, who is portrayed by Gog, and then we have Lucy, 
who in this is portrayed by Carol Marsh. Now, in the novel, he is a suitor to her, but in this, they're siblings. And now we have Mina, who is portrayed by Melissa Striebling, is normally the fiancé of Jonathan, and instead they make it where that is the wife of Arthur, and they're just friends with Jonathan here. So this actually takes place in Germany with the castle itself there as well. Now, as I said, I really like the minor changes because it makes it unique. I also like the idea of revenge and not undying love for Dracula to do what he does here. Now, this film is similar to Universal in that we have a low running time. I used to have pacing issues here, but I don't really feel like that after multiple viewings. The mystery is here in trying to find the, in the new city where Dracula's resting place is. The tension is raised by Lucy and then Mina being the target of this vampire. Now, we also do get Van Helsing, who is portrayed by the great Peter Cushing, while Dracula by Christopher Lee. Now, Van Helsing is more concerned where Dracula has fled as well. Now, this works better for me having watched more adaptations of this story, actually. What works for this movie is the acting as well. Cushing and Lee are amazing in this film. Cushing brings arrogance to this role of Van Helsing that I love, while he's also a pretty good guy. He is the person I think of most when this role is brought up. Now, Lee is such an imposing figure, he makes for a great Dracula. Much like his counterpart, it works well with the arrogance of the role and the prestige. Gog is fine as this concerned husband and brother. He holds his own when he shares the screen with the two legends. It might also be that all of these actors are from the United Kingdom, which I don't necessarily want to assume, but Gog's coming around to believing in vampires is realistic, which works for me. Streebling is solid as his wife and the victim of the Count. Marshes as well. If I do have any issues, there are a couple times that actors are supposed to be dead and you can see them breathing. It doesn't ruin anything, but I just noticed it. I thought the acting was good overall across the board, though. There's actually not a lot in the way of effects here, and that's mostly due to the time period. What was used was fine. The blood is a little bit too bright and more orange. I do have a soft spot for this, though, and I really like the effect during the death sequence of Dracula. It was also done practically, and I thought it was creative. It doesn't look the best, but for the time, it was good. I did notice a moment where bite marks physically could not happen the way that they did. Again, nothing that ruins the movie. It's just something that feels like a little bit of a goof. The film was shot very well. The setting of the movie is, you know, it feels like that time period that it's set, which I believe to be the 1880s. The set are grand, and I'm a big fan there. That is another thing I'll give credit to Hammer for. Now, something else I want to bring up here is I thought for the movie that the score was good. It has a very grand and classical soundtrack. I'm surprised it took me multiple viewings to appreciate it, but it does fit. And it also helps to, you know, build tension for scenes and help with the urgency. I wouldn't say it's a soundtrack I'd listen to while I'm, like, writing or doing other things, but I thought it does work for the movie. So with that said, I thought this film was good. It isn't scary or horrific like films you might see today, but there is more that they took, you know, literature here and brought it to life. I like that instead of making a remake of the story that we've already seen done, they decided to go a different route. The story is quite interesting and is something, you know, different at this time. The acting is really good as to how the film was shot and looks. Effects were solid for the time, and I thought the score of the film was as well. Not my favorite version of this tale, but it is one that I do think is good. If you like the story of Dracula, I would say give this version a viewing, as it is a classic Hammer film. But again, I will warn you, this is the late 50s, but it definitely almost feels like the 60s and 70s that Hammer was known for. So my rating here for Horror of Dracula is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. And I also got to watch Absentia. This is from 2011. This was written and directed by Mike Flanagan. It stars Katie Parker, Courtney Bell, and Dave Levine. This is a drama horror mystery film that is from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a woman and her sister begin to link a mysterious tunnel to a series of disappearances, including that of her own husband. So this is a movie that I learned about thanks to podcast. I had seen Hush as well as Oculus, so I was familiar with the writer and director here of Flanagan. So when I heard about this movie here, you know, I was already had a little bit of knowledge about him. So this went on a list of movies to see, but I hadn't got around to it yet. That was until the podcast Under the Stairs, as this movie was on the 2011 list for the Summer Challenge series. This is an interesting film that I'm glad I finally got to tick off my list. We have an interesting idea here. You can see the early stages of Flanagan as a filmmaker. He is great at giving us something and then coming back to it as it's referenced later on. For an example here, Callie shows up with gifts for Tracy's baby. Now, Callie is portrayed by Parker, while Belle portrays Tracy. One of them is the book of Three Billy Goats Gruff. This story has parallels here, and it looks like this is considered to be an update to that fairy story. I would say this is loosely, but it also makes sense. There are also some missing posters for both humans and animals that also tie back into all of this as well, and I thought that enhances the story. Now, where I think I'm going to take this next will be breaking down the two sisters. First, I'll start with Callie. We learned the last time that she saw Daniel, she was quite young. He believed in her, though. She lived a rough life from there, and we get the idea that she had a drug problem and ran away from a guy. Now, she is clean and trying to get her life back on track. Part of that is coming to help her sister. There is something up with her, though, that makes her unreliable. I find it interesting that we see what she believes happens at different times while also getting to see later on what others believe really happened. It adds a layer of duality along with the unreliable narrator. Then we have her sister. What I found interesting is that was how far along she is at being pregnant. I can't blame her, though. Her husband has been missing without a trace for seven years. She is stuck waiting for him while also trying to do things for herself. What is sad, though, is that we have the detective Mallory, who is also holding out hope. So she is somewhat stringing him along. It is strategic for this movie to have Daniel show back up when she is finally done, and it makes it even more emotionally impactful. So for the last aspect of the story to delve into a bit deeper would be the two ways to look at this story. There is a supernatural angle that people are disappearing with this tunnel. I love the backstory that Callie finds as far back as they've been keeping track of history, as this place has a high disappearance rate. We could also have this entity that is bug-like that is taking people. The other way to look at this is that Callie is just getting high, so she thinks these things are happening. It is something else strategic that people who go through withdrawals tend to think that there are bugs crawling on them. It adds to that element of not believing her. Now, I think I'll take this next to the acting. I thought that Parker does a good job as Callie. She brings some snark to the role that I liked. It also is a heartwarming that she is trying to get her life back on track by helping her sister, who is, you know, doing the same thing for different reasons. I also find it interesting here that she is a Christian and doing an act of kindness makes her a target here. Bella solid as her sister. What works best for her performance is how sad she is, you know, going through everything. Not knowing for as long as she has would be tough of where her husband went. I also think that Levine as well as Justin Gordon are solid as the detectives who are assigned to this case. I thought that Morgan Peter Brown was good as Daniel. I like to see the cameo here by Doug Jones as well. The rest of the cast really rounded this off for what was needed for me. And really the last thing to go into would be the cinematography and effects. For the former, you see that Flanagan in his early stages of directing. There are some interesting shots here, especially with the tunnel. I like how he frames things with shadows to make it creepier. It is also a good touch to show us both sides of things that are happening, so we don't necessarily know who to believe. The effects are solid for the most part. We don't really get a lot of them. Now, 
this wasn't a you know a lot of a budget that they have here so the cgi that we get isn't great i've definitely seen worse though so there is that so then in conclusion here i'm finally glad that i could take this off my list this is an interesting early flanagan movie here updating the concept of three billy goats gruff with a different take on it was good i like the backstory that is discovered for this area and how things play out there the acting is good across the board this is shot very well and even though i have some slight issues with the effects it is enough to ruin anything Aside from the soundtrack fit for what was needed for me, I'd say this is an above-average movie. I wouldn't be surprised if this goes up now with, you know, subsequent viewings that I have for it. So my rating here for Absentia is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then next I have Taste the Blood of Dracula. This was directed by Peter Sandsdy. The screenplay was written by Anthony Hines, and this is based on the character created by Bram Stoker. This stars Christopher Lee, Jeffrey Keane, and Gwen Watford. This is a drama fantasy horror romance thriller that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being three distinguished gentlemen accidentally resurrect Count Dracula, killing a disciple of his in the process. The Count sinks to avenge his dead servant. Now this movie I sought out when I was working my way through the Hammer films right after college. I had seen all the Universal Dracula and Frankenstein films, so I decided to work my way through the Hammer versions after that. I will admit the title of this one made me chuckle, and I will give credit to their creativity. So this is the second time that I've been seeing it now, as I got the chance to see this at the Gateway Film Center in the theater. So where I want to start is commending Hammer a little bit more here. This is interesting ways to bring back Dracula, kill him off, and expand to different ideas to keep the series going. I like that this movie picks up right after the last one left off, and... It's been a while since I've seen that one, and I believe it's Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, but I remember the death scene to an extent. This is where I want to start as well. I like the idea of Dracula, who is portrayed by Christopher Lee, dies with Weller looking on. Now, Weller is a greedy businessman, and it makes sense that he would collect the items that are left. You never know who might want to buy them. It even has a cool idea what to do with the story here. I like having this group of rich men who have gotten all the pleasures that they can out of life and are going darker. It is something that I've seen elsewhere, and I'm fine with them bringing it to the series. I like it even more when they're faced with what is happening at this ritual, and they don't have the confidence and it spooks them. I also like that they're scared of the repercussions. Now we have Lord Courtley, who is portrayed by Ralph Bates. I like what they're doing with the blood of Dracula, and that works for me, and I do have issues though from here. Now before writing this, I did read some trivia. It appears that the original idea was to have Lord Courtley be a vampire and to not have Dracula in this at all. I wish they would have stuck with this. Lee didn't really want to do this movie and reprise, you know, being Dracula anymore. It explains why there's limited lines here. Now, Lord Courtley changing into Dracula didn't make sense to me. Reflecting back, I can see that Dracula is forced into this movie and it would have worked better without him, in my opinion. That's not to say the story isn't good, though. So as I've alluded to in the synopsis stated, Dracula goes about getting his revenge on the trio. I like that he uses their children against them. This is morbid. He starts with Alice, who is portrayed by Linda Hayden. And it's interesting here is that she already hates her father. He is strict with her for no reason other than he doesn't trust Paul's intentions. Now, Paul is portrayed by Anthony Higgins, and he is the son of one of the guys in his group. I think part of this is that he knows that his father Samuel, what things that he dabbles in with him, and fears her getting mixed up with his son. This is a morbid darkness to using the children to get his revenge, and I dig that. It is even better with how he treats them after things are done. So that should be enough for the story here, so I'll take this over to the acting. It isn't the best performance from Lee, but I'm not going to hold that against him since I understand that he was going on behind the scenes here business-wise. Even if it isn't great, he still has such a presence as his vampire. 
I like how Keen plays the father here. He's such a jerk, and it makes me feel bad for his family. Now, Watford is fine as his wife, and I like Hayden quite a bit as well. She has a cuteness that she adds to this role. Then we also have Peter Salas and Martin Jarvis, who plays the other two guys that are his, you know, group. I like Higgins along with Ilsa Blair and John Carson, along with Bates and Roy Kinnear to help round this movie out for what was needed. So there's something I did have an issue with here, though, and I don't like how this movie ends. It feels like they really didn't know what to do with it, and it felt forced. I was left unsatisfied, to be honest. It also feels like they're ignoring some vampire lore here that has been established previously, which is an issue for what happens when you're making sequels. I don't want to say that it ruined anything, but it just isn't tight, as it could have been with the writing. And the last thing to go into would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. To start here, the cinematography was well done. The effects were as well, and I find it interesting that this is from 1970 and the blood looks good. It is around this era that it usually is bright, but that's not the case here. The costumes and set design were also good. It feels like the era, aside from Alice's dress having a zipper. Now, I don't know when this necessarily takes place, but I know that zippers weren't invented yet. The soundtrack also fit the movie for what was needed, and I did like the sound design to add atmosphere, especially in the old church that is used for a lot of the rituals as well as the climax. So in conclusion here, this movie is fun. I like the continuity and picking up where the last one left off. There are some issues with the lore and how this one ends. I would have been better served to not have Dracula in it, but I understand that there are some issues with businesses there. The acting was good, and I thought the effects were solid and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Not the best film in the series, but is one that is worth a watch, especially if you enjoy movies like this from the era. For this one, this is an above-average movie for me, just lacking to go high currently. So my reading here for Taste the Blood of Dracula is going to be a 7 out of 10. And I also got to watch The Innkeepers. This is from 2011. This is written and directed by Ty West. It stars Sarah Paxton, Pat Healy, and Kelly McGillis. This is a drama horror mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being during the final days at the Yankee Peddler Inn. Two employees determined to reveal the hotel's haunted past begin to experience disturbing events as old guests check in for a stay. So this is a film that I originally saw while working at Family Video. I had a coworker tell me how excited they were for this one to come out, but I had never heard of it at the time that I watched it. My ex and I took this home, and to be honest, we weren't the biggest fans. I did rewatch this one for a podcast and then again for the Summer Challenge series for the podcast Under the Stairs, making this my third viewing. So now that I've seen this three times, it has grown on me more and more with each viewing. This is a slow burn, but what I like here is that little pieces of information are given to build the, to the final product. There isn't a lot to the story, but it also doesn't need that. This is a ghost story at heart. Something I would say is that it's written and directed by Ty West, so if you've seen anything by him, you can definitely tell he did this one. Something I find interesting here is that the only person who sees the ghosts are Claire, who is portrayed by Paxton. Luke, who is portrayed by Healy, claims he has, and then Lee, who is portrayed by McGillis, seems to have been able to communicate with the spirits. I bring this up because it makes you wonder if there's actually a ghost here or not. There is an interesting logical explanation to everything that we're getting here, where you could argue that there's nothing supernatural going on here. There is something at the end, though, that makes it all come together for me. So for the acting for this movie, I'm a big fan of Paxton, and she looks good here. I also like seeing her as this haunting goes on because we get to see her descending into fear that drives her crazy. I'm a big fan of this in the film, and I think that Paxton does great at portraying it, especially since you can read it two different ways. I actually also like Teely. I love seeing the banter with Paxton in this movie as I think it feels natural. 
I also really like that he has a crush on her and tries to tell her, but she's too amped to get to the bottom of the haunting. This also feels like she's letting him down easier. McGillis is solid in this role, and she plays that well. I also thought the supporting cast here does well in Ronin the South, especially the bit parts that we get from Allison Bartlett, Jake Ryan, Lena Dunham, Brenda Cooney, and George Riddle. So next thing I would go to would be the effects for this movie. Most of them look to be done practical to me, and I thought that looked good. The ghost of Madeline O'Malley, who's portrayed by Cooney, looked good. She was quite creepy when used. Now, the old man was also done up at one point, and he's portrayed by Riddle. I like how we find him at one point and what he does to get Claire to the climax. He was creepy looking for sure. So the cinematography was also well done, making us linger on shots and look for something around the room. Also, the score for the film is solid, and it helps to build tension during the scenes that it's needed. So with that said, after a few viewings, I now really dig this film. This is a slow burn haunted house film that it also makes it great is that it can be read that the house isn't haunted, especially because the only person who sees anything is Claire. I like how the film builds and where it ends. The payoff though isn't as great as some of West's other films. The acting in this is solid, the effects are as well. The editing is intentionally slow to help build that atmosphere. And also the score helps to set that mood and build the tension. I feel this is an above average film. If you're a fan of the subgenre, I would definitely give this one a go. So my rating here for The Innkeepers is a 7.5 out of 10. I've got the right wavelength anyhow. Pull harder. feature review of this week is going to be old mother riley's ghosts this is from 1941 this is directed by john baxter it is written by jeffrey orm and con west while arthur lucian provided additional dialogue now he stars in this with kitty mcshane and john stewart this also features a bromley davenport dennis windham john laurie peter gawthorne henry b longhurst Ben Williams, Charles Patton, and Henry Woolston. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb. And there's not enough ratings yet on Letterboxd, but it's looking like it's hovering between like a 2 and a 2.5 and star movie. And our synopsis here is a charwoman comes upon a plot to steal the invention of a man who lives in a haunted house. So this is the movie from 1941 that I discovered thanks to Letterboxd. Coming into this, I did a bit of research to see and realized and learned that this is a comedy series from the United Kingdom, much like Abbott and Costello or The Three Stooges. For movies like this, they would veer into other subgenres just to try to attract more fans. But this is one that I wasn't necessarily sure I was going to be able to find, but I did end up finding a fairly cheap DVD for it. So that is why it is being featured here as the last 1941 film that I need to watch. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do a little bit of notes here. The director of Baxter was in charge of 24 films. Of them, one is in the horror genre, and it is this one here. 
This is the only movie that I've seen from him, and it appears he mostly did comedies. Now, as I said, we do have two writers here. The first is Orm, who has 16 credits. It looks like he did a few of these comedies and, you know, did quite a bit with the Old Mother Riley films. This is the only horror film and the only one that I've seen. It is very similar for his co-writer of West, who has 17 writing credits. Of them, most of them are comedies and movies in the series. Once more, the only horror credit and the only one that I've seen. Now, Lucan has made famous for this role here. He has 17 credits. It does appear from some of the stuff that I looked into that he started out on the stage and might have even continued to do this, you know, in theaters and everything like that. Like, not actually movie theaters, but like stage play type versions. But he does have two horror credits. This is the first, and the other one is the last film in the series with Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. That one actually features Bella Lugosi. Then we have his wife of McShane. She was in 15 films. This is the only one that was in horror and the only one that I have seen, much like for her husband. Then we have Stuart. Now, he was in 85 movies. I've seen him in five things, and four of which are in horror. The first that he was in was Hounds of the Baskervilles from 1932, and this is the earliest movie that I've seen him in. I've also seen him in The Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, and that is a Hammer film. Then he was in The Village of the Dam from 1960, and Paranoic, which was another Hammer film as well. And then he was also in Superman, which I've also seen. That's the one with Christopher Reeves from back in the day. So where I want to start my actual review of this movie is what a charwoman is, for those that don't know, because I had no idea. It is someone who comes into a house a few days a week to clean. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a maid in the United States or like even like a, you know, maid type service. But in this case, Mrs. Riley, who is portrayed by Lucan, does this for an office that is run by Mr. Cartwright. Now, Mr. Cartwright is portrayed by Gawthorne. We see that he is on the outs with his son of John, who is portrayed by Stuart. He has high hopes for him, but John doesn't want to work for his father. Since he won't, he is going to have to cut him off from the estate. Even though it makes life hard, John agrees and leaves the house. Now, Mrs. Riley lives with her daughter of Kitty, who is portrayed by Mick Shane. Now, both work in the same office. Her daughter is like a waitress of sorts. The two of them get into it over a painting of Mrs. Riley's late husband and Kitty's father that is hanging in the dining room. It is kind of a funny painting that I think I would hang it up if Jamie would allow me to, but I know she wouldn't, so we would have very similar arguments. But Mrs. Riley soon realizes that she is late for work and states that she never is. At the office, Mr. Cartwright is quite upset that the conference room hasn't been cleaned. And before this, though, we get an interesting interaction between Warrender, who is portrayed by Longhurst, and an inventor. It appears they're trying to find a new engine, but they're struggling. Now, Warrender is looking to cut out Mr. Cartwright and take more of the profits for himself, as it does seem like this inventor is onto something. Now, the inventor is leery about lying, though. But Mrs. Riley ends up causing a commotion, trying to make up for not doing her job and getting herself fired as she interrupts this meeting. Now, trying to figure out what she will do causes her to meet John in a park. She learns a bit of his plight and offers him a place to stay. This makes for an interesting dinner where we have Jem, who is portrayed by Wyndham, a man who is staying there, and I almost feel like Mrs. Riley is kind of interested in him. Kitty doesn't like John spending time with her mother, now, she ends up going out to dinner with Warrender, but when she rebuffs something that he says, this gets her fired as well. Now, Jem also gets into it with the foreman at his job that leaves everyone in this house out of work, including John. Now, John and Jem hit it off after they had a bit of a rocky start, as it seems like Jem is on to making this engine. John gives him some pointers and a few things that he noticed about the design that they're working out. 
And then it also feels like Mrs. Riley ends up using something from the kitchen that helps them even more. Now, they see an opportunity when a Butterick, who is portrayed by Davenport, informs Mrs. Riley that she has inherited a castle in Scotland. Warrender wants the plans that the two men are coming up with, and they end up going with the Rileys to go out to this castle as well. They try to find a way to scare them off, and when that doesn't work, they try to get a bit rougher with them. So that's why I'm going to leave my recap and start giving a bit more backstory into this. What I found is that Old Mother Riley was a comedy act that was done by Lucan and his wife McShane, as I've said. What adds to this is that this is one of the earliest drag shows as well, since Lucan is a man playing Mrs. Riley, you know, an old woman. It is interesting since we get to see things in my day and age like Tyler Perry being Medea or actors like Eddie Murphy playing some women in, you know, The Nutty Professor. You have Martin Lawrence playing characters like this in like Big Mama's House. Now, I know there's other people that have done it outside of black actors and I'm probably forgetting a lot of them, but it does seem progressive to be doing this, you know, back in the 30s and 40s. Now, since I've watched this for the horror elements, I'll go there next. It is light on them, though, if I'm going to be honest. We don't get them until they go to the castle, which is like the last 20 minutes of the movie. And even then, we don't get a whole lot. Now, we do get this cool ghostly effect, and that was, you know, about it. There is a skeleton in a bed and a walking suit of armor where the head raises off of it in addition as well. Now, what we do get looks good, but it just feels like it's forcing the movie to give it that, you know, other genre there without fully embracing it. Now, what this movie does more, though, is comedy. And I'll be honest, I give respect to what the series did and what it's trying to do. The comedy doesn't work for me, though. It feels like it's some of the other comedy groups from the era, just not as good, and it doesn't land with me. I'm not saying it isn't funny, though. I'm sure there's people out there that would enjoy this. I'm just not the audience personally. Now, from here, I want to take this over to the acting. I do want to give credit to Lucan as Mrs. Riley. He does a solid job at playing this old woman and, you know, being very quirky. And this includes from the way that he looks to how he sounds. That was impressive there. Now, McShane I wasn't overly impressed with, though. She is reserved and doesn't stand out. Stuart was solid, and I like the idea of him not wanting charity from his family or anyone else. It is impressive because, you know, he is from money, so him, you know, trying to go out on his own and actually, you know, working hard is kind of cool to see. The rest of the cast was fine, but no one really stands out to me. I guess I should also give credit to the villain, as that is something, you know, we're still seeing today here with a creepy greedy capitalist and the last thing i'll go into would be the cinematography and the soundtrack for the former it's fine they don't really do anything crazy with it and it's just standard for the era i did like the castle as we get a bit of that old dark house subgenre there now the copy that i saw wasn't in the greatest shape so the sound quality was poor that didn't help me you know to pick up on the score unfortunately so i'm gonna have to you know kind of hold it against it a bit just because i don't really have anything that i can kind of say there now, the only thing for trivia that I found is kind of interesting because I thought that might have been him. This is the only film in the series that Arthur Lucan also appears as a man. He briefly appears as a crook that disguises himself as Old Mother Riley because when he donned the costume, I thought it was kind of like it looks exactly the same. So that's kind of a cool thing that they did there. So then in conclusion, I think there is some historical importance to this movie with Old Mother Riley and the comedy act from it. This is really a comedy, though, that has some forced-in horror elements, just to put it in the subgenre. I give credit to Lucan, but the rest of the cast, aside from Stuart, didn't really stand out. The comedy didn't work for me, and the sound quality for my copy wasn't good. So with the issues that I had, this movie is below average for me. I also can't recommend it unless you love the series and are a completionist. So my rating for Old Mother Riley's Ghosts is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that because this movie doesn't necessarily have anything deeper than kind of what I've already relayed to you. 
So what I am going to do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Hey, Neil. Jack, we haven't been able to keep anyone in that house. Okay. So while you're waiting for the movers, can you just check it out and see okay. if you can figure out why everyone breaks their lease and leaves it? Sure. So have taken everything Fix the house? This house is not broken. Okay. The years, the years, the years go by. So you're a ghost. This one is not afraid. Have you forgotten how to structure a haunting? The years, the years, the years. So they sent you here and your job is to scare people off? I have a lot of questions. Uh, how does one become a ghost? Can you walk through walls? You want a beer? Can ghosts have beer? The years keep on turning away. What do you all get from scaring people out of their homes? It's what we do. I really do not like this. I thought that this house was destined for me. They said that it called for me, that it had been waiting all of these years for me to make it complete. I know how hard it is to be alone. It might not make sense to you, but it is my purpose. It is a gift to feel so lucky to have something and to know that it is lucky to have you. And for my second featured review of this episode is going to be A Ghost Waits. This is technically from 2020, but it was getting its festival round then, and it's now getting its wide release here in 2021. This is directed by Adam Stovall, who also came up with the screenplay along with Mac Lloyd Andrews, and the story was written by Matt Taylor. This also stars Andrews along with Natalie Walker and Sidney Vollmer, while also having Amanda Miller. Stovall himself is the voice of Neil, Tim Pollock. Nicholas Thurkettle, Chrissy Bates, Diva Marie, Michael Drace Fountain, Tessa Taylor, Mia Luna Barkage, Ashley Hollinsworth Deathly, Chandler Deathy, Angela Duggins, Vanessa Emerson, Jeremy Greenwald, and Alyssa Hancock. This is a comedy horror romance film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a man's job requires him to clean a house, which turns out to be haunted. In the course of trying to exercise the ghost, he falls in love with her. So this is a movie that I learned about through podcasts. It was getting a bit of buzz for being on the new Arrow player and getting quite a few people that were, you know, said they enjoyed this new service along with this movie. So there's a few things that caught my attention here, so I decided to sign up for the free trial to check this out. And I thought it'd make an interesting double feature here on the podcast as well. 
So then before I get into the movie itself, the director of Stovall is quite interesting as this is his feature film debut, and this is the same for him as a writer. Now the co-writer of Andrews is the same, this is the only thing that they've done so far. Now Taylor, who came up with the story, is in the same boat, being this is his feature film debut for that writing as well. Now as an actor though, Andrews has nine credits. Five of them are in horror. The first is one that I've heard of, but I haven't seen yet in The Look Like People. He followed that up with They're Inside, which I've never heard of. He was in Doctor Sleep, and then this here, I've seen both of these, of course. He does have another film that is slated for later this year of When I Consume You, which I have not heard of either. Now, he was also in The Siren, which I do consider to be horror from 2019, and got its release last year in 2020, and that was another thing that was covered on here in December. Now, Walker is pretty new with two credits. This is the only other movie she was in was called Puppet Me. I'm not sure what that is, though, to be honest. And then finally, we have Volmer. She has four credits. Now, two of them are in horror, with her first being something called Ellie, which I have not heard of. I did see her in Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile as well. Not technically a horror film, but close enough for me as I would, you know, throw up a quick review here on the podcast for that. Now, for this movie, we start off hearing a family in panic. They are trying to flee, and we see that it is a ghost that they are trying to get away from. We will learn that her name is Muriel and portrayed by Walker. We then shift over to meet our main character of Jack, who is portrayed by Andrews. He is told by Neil, who is the voice by Stowall. Neil is his boss, and he wants him to go over to this house that this family just fled from to get it ready for the next tenants. Jack soon realizes upon arriving that the previous family left all of their things like the Amityville Horror. He finds this odd, and when he inquires about it, Neil tells him not to worry about it, that there's going to be movers coming over to get it eventually, so just do what he can while it's still there. So Jack goes about getting things prepped, but what I find interesting here is that while he is working, he doesn't notice the hauntings around him. This made me chuckle since this movie is playing with the tropes here. We have things like a rocking chair or like a door opening. Jack doesn't notice it and just chalks it up to things that he needs to fix when he does see something happening. That is until he hears a woman's voice. He also has nightmares of Muriel. Jack is struggling since he doesn't have a place to stay currently and no one will help him out, which I kind of felt bad for. So when he doesn't have anything else he can do, he kind of makes his stand here. He also does learn more than he was bargaining for in the process, and Muriel is actually intrigued by Jack as she likes his singing voice, so this kind of leads them to get to know each other in a definitely interesting way. So I'm going to leave my recap here, as I don't want to go into spoilers, and there isn't a whole lot more to the story here that I'm kind of leaving out. This is more about the interactions between this couple of Jack and Muriel, as well as finding themselves in the process. When I heard the synopsis from podcasts, I knew this was leaning more into comedy, but not necessarily to where it ends up, which is a good thing. Now, where I want to delve into first would be the interesting duality of Jack and Muriel. Now, for the former, he works as a maintenance man of sorts. We learn in the beginning that he needs a place to crash due to cockroaches from, I believe, like a neighbor's house are getting into his place or something along those lines. We see that he enjoys what he is doing, but not necessarily in the traditional sense. He seems more like a millennial and doesn't really care about money. Now, Muriel is interesting here as well. There is mythology of, you know, these ghosts being spectral agents or something along those terms. Her job is to haunt this house and get people to leave. I love this idea at what they're doing as a job for both of them. It also makes them enemies since he needs to finish his work and she needs him to leave. Now, the idea of haunting being a job is where I want to delve a bit more. Muriel visits her ghost supervisor, as Jack calls it, and this is Miss Henry portrayed by Miller. We learn that Muriel is a legacy at what she does, but she might have met her match. 
Miss Henry is willing to send in Rosie, who was portrayed by Volmer. Now, she is new at what she does, and she's had some early success. I like the idea of taking something that is like a horror movie trope here, where hauntings are supposed to be terrifying, and making them a mundane thing. And we also get a little bit something here like Beetlejuice, where Rosie is very kind of more new school with how she goes about hers, where we have Muriel, who is much more traditional, and I think it's kind of a cool thing to play with. Now, there's also a love story here. Sunset drives the movie as the issue with this haunting being completed, as well as, you know, having that paired up against Jack finishing his job, I'll shift there. I think that Andrews and Walker have good chemistry. It is interesting that I said that Jack feels like a millennial where we get hints that Muriel has been doing what she is, you know, for some time. We never learn what era she is from or when she died, but Walker does well in playing this role timeless with the words she uses and the dialect. I also thought that Volmer, Miller, Stowell, and the rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed to kind of push these characters to where they end up. So next I want to go over to the effects and cinematography. I think I'll start with the latter. This movie is shot in black and white and it makes it feel art house, which I don't normally have a problem with, but it does feel slightly pretentious here. But not enough really to ruin it though, as the cinematography does look good. I'm almost wondering if part of this was due to hiding of some of the effects. We don't get a lot of them, but Muriel, Rosie, and Miss Henry are done up with heavy makeup that make them look ghostly, and it does look good in black and white. I'm thinking that this helps to hide it, as I said, and I'll be honest, it looks good. Now, we also do get a little bit of blood in this movie. We don't have to see the color, so that's good there, and I think the consistency is solid. And I would say that overall, this is pretty well done there. So then, the last thing I'll go into before I kind of start wrapping this up would be the soundtrack. It focuses on this quite a bit as Jack is listening to music while working. This helps bring Muriel and him together as well as she was a singer in her life before passing away. I did like that connection. The soundtrack works for what the movie needs. Not necessarily songs that I liked personally or would listen to outside of this movie, but I really have no issues how it fits into the movie though. So really the only bits of trivia that I could find on IMDb at the moment are that this was named by Total Film Magazine as the best film at 2020 Fright Fest. And then this is also shown at the Nevermore Film Festival on February 26th to March 4th of this year in 2021. So in conclusion here, this is a solid movie. I'm not sure it will be for everyone though. This is an art house film that takes a love story and does something a bit different with it. I like the performances of Andrews as Jack and Walker as Muriel. The rest help to push them to where they end up. It is shot well even though I'm not sure it necessarily needs to be in black and white. The effects are aided there and it does look good to me. The soundtrack also fit for what was needed. This is an above average movie for me. If what I said sounds good to you, I would recommend giving this one a go. So my rating here for A Ghost Waits is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Now I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think I need that here. So what I am going to do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I want to welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here for episode number 92. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback that you would like there, or if you have want anything right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you would like to read any of the reviews from this episode or any of the past ones, that's horrorreview.webnode.com, and that's Reviews of the Dead is the name of my blog over there. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, you can follow me, and I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU, and over there I'll be posting all of the reviews from anything on here or any of my non-horror stuff is where I do that. If you'd like to follow my Instagram, that's David OSU87. And then if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile all one word. And on both of those I'll be posting any of the movie posters for anything that I am reviewing. 
the last thing I'll ask you to do, if that you can, is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, and if you're also able to rate and review just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, and get out in front of you know more listeners and everything like that to help me grow this show. So anything that you're able to do there, I greatly appreciate it. So for the next episode, it's going to be yet again another Odyssey Through the Ones as I'm finally going to move up to the 1951s. And the old movie I'm going to be watching is finally getting around to watching The Thing from Another World. And since that, you know, is dealing with a bit of aliens, I think for my 2021 release, I'm going to watch Fried Berry as I've heard some buzz about that. And I do believe that one is located over on Shudder. I'll also continue to watch as much as I can, especially through those Summer Challenge series movies that I keep working through over there. But I think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.